Before we start this podcast, we would like to acknowledge the true locals, the First Nations people who have been custodians of the lands, waters and cultures for tens of thousands of years. We pay respect to First Nations elders past, present and emerging and acknowledge that this podcast is taking place on Gadigal land in Australia where sovereignty was never ceded. Lucy Small is a professional longboarder, creative writer and storyteller and is one of the women on the front line of paving the way for gender equality in sport and the world. We were lucky enough to sit down with her and talk everything from growing up in Western Australia, fighting for gender equality and everything in between. Podcast powered by Board Socks with your host Dan O'Connell. So we got Lucy on the podcast today. Um, how's it going, Lucy? How's the taste of freedom since lockdowns ended? Yeah, I feel like it's pretty surreal. Actually, I um, went I went down the coast right on the day that everything opened last week, and um, so I've kind of been out in the bush a little bit anyway. And it was pouring with rain, so I was inside for a lot of the week. But driving back last night, driving through Sydney and suddenly being like, whoa, there's traffic. I know. I have not missed that. <laughs> and yeah, just seeing, I don't know, seeing everyone in restaurants and out and about, it's like, it's kind of weird. It's weird. I think after three months of, of just being so, just becoming so used to like peace and quiet and um, almost have forgotten what it's like having, having kind of life in the city again. Um, but very much looking forward to being able to surf wherever I want and um, yeah, move around in that way. Yeah, for sure. It's going to be amazing to escape the crowds finally. See you later, Bondi. Um, yeah, so cool. So over your lockdown period, what, so can you tell us a bit about what you're doing? Like you work for the Greens. What's your role with them? Yeah, so I had um, last six months have been really, really massive for me. I had, had a lot of changes going on and um, that's kind of been um, – doubled down on by the fact that we've been in lockdown. So in June, I started working for the Greens um, on the federal election. So we don't know when that's going to be just yet, but um, I'm working for a state politician called David Shoebridge, who is running in the federal election. So I do a lot of, a lot of stuff. Working in politics is a really kind of, it's a really diverse role. It's very, it's quite generalist, I guess, in terms of, in like in the morning I'm like scheduling social media posts and like by midday I'm like organizing a trivia and then in the evening I'm like on a round table with um, people from Western Sydney talking about the COVID response. So it's kind of like my role in all that is to do take notes and, and sit there. <laughs> but um, it's, it's really, really, it's really interesting in that way because it's every day is doing something really different which I, I like um, but also I think the kind of people that work in politics are really people who have to believe in something so there's a lot of big personalities and there's a lot of um, kind of yeah I guess people who, who believe they're right not saying that the Greens is like that the Greens is wonderful David's great <laughs> just becoming accustomed to that working environment of people that are are pushing forward their views and um, it's it's been a pretty interesting three or four months to, to kind of be introduced to working in that world. Um, but I think it suits me. I don't know. I think I like it. Epic. Yeah, back in the greens. This next election, I reckon they're on. <laughs> Things crossed. Fingers and toes. Um, cool. So before um, going into the greens, you sort of had an extensive list of study accomplishments, including a journalism degree. Uh, led you to an internship at Surfing World magazine. Do you want to tell us a bit more about that? Yeah, so um, I started studying, um, I did a a Bachelor of Arts down at um, Deakin University in Geelong. And um, so I lived down in the South Coast for a few years. But I I guess I finished school and I, I, I did well at English. So people said you should do journalism or something like that. And I actually just didn't really know what to study. 
or whether I wanted to do that. And um, so I actually <laughs> looked at a map of Australia and was like, where is there surf and uni? <laughs> and that was Geelong. So I moved to Torquay and um, I actually was trying to think like, okay, well, if I'm going to do journalism, but a journalist is supposed to be a gatekeeper for information and, and events and, and the news. So I really wondered like how... If you, if you learn how to write and how to publish, how are you supposed to know how to analyze the situation properly? You know, like you, maybe you need to have some more knowledge than that. So I did a double major of anthropology and journalism. And um, I just didn't really have huge interest in the news at that time. So even though I was learning how to write, I, um, I was still more interested in kind of like editorial style um, writing so for my first ever assignment was a feature profile and I interviewed Wayne Lynch which was one of the most amazing experiences of my life so far because it was at a time it was before his his movie came out so he had, wasn't really doing any interviews and he just agreed to do it through a friend of a friend who knew him if it wasn't going to be published so I was like I think I was 19 and um, went to his house where he, he lived down at, at Aries Inlet and um, it was like a stormy afternoon and um, I walk in there, I'm super nervous, never done an interview before. And um, and he just starts going on this big spiel about um, carbon trading and I'm just sitting there like, <laughs> how do we start the interview? <laughs> <laughs> and, then, um, and then I just started... Um, I just started asking him questions about what it was like down in Victoria when he was younger and just kind of, he just was so open and so nice. And I, I think I kind of heard that he was kind of a bit of a closed off person, but I didn't find him like that at all. He was so nice. He gave me, he talked about so, so many different things. And then one of his friends came over and they were like having this big reminisce about being conscientious objectors from the Vietnam War and hiding out down in Apollo Bay. And it was such a, an awesome experience. I, I left his house like in su on such a high and I really thought like, wow, that's really awesome. It's really awesome to be thinking about surfing and surf culture in that way and to have access to those stories like that. Um, and so part of my course, I had to do an internship and um, I think it was like during Ripfell Pro down at Bells, I met Vaughan Blakey, who um, at that time was the editor of Surfing World magazine. And um, my uni course was kind of feeding people into working, doing their internships in newspapers. And I just said, can I organise my own internship? And so I hit Vaughan up and I said, can I come and um, come and intern at Surfing World? So after like, after hassling him for a Good six weeks. I was like, I'm coming. I'm here. I'm already. At, I'm already in the office. I'm knocking on the door. And so um, I was supposed to only do two months, and I ended up staying for four months because I loved it so much. It was so fun, and um, it was surfing world has changed a lot since then. But um, it was it was so cool to be in this little shoebox office. Just my job was basically to um, proofread. <laughs> so like read the issue six six times before it, it gets goes to print and um write a few captions and do a few little small bits but they did they got me to do a few interviews as well and which was really cool and um they actually they wanted to do an interview with Wayne Lynch and they didn't know how to who, like how to get to him and I was like well I actually know him and so I interviewed him again <laughs> for Surfing World which was really awesome and um, I guess that was my first kind of, um, it was my first experience of really uh, working in a surf industry type um, environment. I'd already started freelancing for Pacific Longwater magazine, uh, which was, which who I still write for now, um, 10 years later, who have sort of been the, um, John Brayson, who was the editor, has basically been my the biggest champion of my work ever since and which has been really awesome he's always um workshopped anything I've done over the years and now he will always kind of encourage me to write with my own voice and to tell stories that I believe in and that I'm writing from my heart which is so so special to have that kind of support and 
that unwavering kind of encouragement, which is really, really nice. Um, but yeah, from working at Surfing World, I, I guess I really learned a lot about the editorial process and um, also made me a lot become quite aware of how difficult it is to get women's stories in magazines and what the process is and what the barriers can be. Um, I think that Surfing World is actually, a, it's a really awesome magazine and I think that they, they have published a lot of women's stories but the kind of, I guess, the, the ways that the, like the readership and the market are skewed, it's difficult to sell women's stories. It has been anyway and it was at that time but I think um, now I think people are willing to pick up a surf mag, buy a surf mag off the um, shelf that's got a woman on the cover um, so that has definitely changed. I've noticed that change over the years. Um, but yeah, it was a really, really great learning experience there. Yeah, it sounds awesome. And what happened with that Wayne Lynch, the first one? It never got published. Never got published. I couldn't publish it. He never, because he had, I think it was his movie, his Patagonia movie. Um, so he just said that I couldn't publish it because everything in the interview was in the movie. Yeah, that's so <laughs> mythical, wasn't it? <laughs> so yeah, I just... I just have it. Yeah. It just, you know, I got a high distinction. Beautiful. <laughs> <laughs> Could you feel that the mediums were changing then? Was stuff going a lot online or was that just sort of the golden period of print media for the surf mags? Um, I think it was, it was definitely, um, it was definitely starting to become more online than, than print. Um, like I think it was sort of, like Surfing World has never really had a big online platform. Like they've always been really committed to print. And then though it was like you had, it was owned by a, um, a media company that had multiple different publications and they had like the editor, a graphic designer, a junior editor, like they had like five or six staff. And now it's just John Frank and um, Sean Doherty who own it as a, they're doing it as a side kind of project. So um I think it was still it was still kind of a lot stronger in that way for print than it is now, but I think that it definitely was already moving moving that way then. Um, I just love print though, so <laughs> yeah, it's good to pick up a magazine when you yeah like going on a trip or I love getting to the airport and first thing I do is just go straight and get a surf mag and I'm like. I'm going to read this back to front by the time the flight's yeah. finished. <laughs> <laughs> totally, especially if you're going on a surf trip yeah. and you're at the airport and, yeah, like, I mean, it's photos look better in print. You can see it all. It's it's really nice to hold it. You get to pile up boxes and boxes of old surf mags in your house that you'll never read again, but you yeah. do it anyway. <laughs> yeah, cool. So, um, yeah, I guess at the moment the, the world needs peace more than ever and you've got a master's degree of peace and conflict studies. What were some of the major insights that you got from this degree? Yeah, so um, my peace and conflict studies degree was probably my my greatest university experience. I, I decided to study that basically because I was kind of just, I finished my bachelor, I did, I ended up doing an honours in um, anthropology and then I, I went travelling and I was just kind of not really sure what to do and um, I thought maybe I'll do a master's that might shed some light on what direction I should take and I found um, Peace and Conflict Studies at, at UCID and um, I guess through my travels, uh, yeah, like a few years ago I went to Palestine um, to the West Bank and that was my first kind of exposure to uh, like armed violence, not that I saw any armed violence but people living their lives in conflict zones and um, and it, it's really sparked my interest in the way that the way that people survive <laughs> the way that um, life on the ground can be so different to what we see in the media and um, yeah it was sort of a, like a watershed trip for me to to really see what like what the impacts of ongoing protracted war can be so um, from that, studying peace and conflict studies, I focused on gender. I wrote my dissertation in um, women, soldiers, and um, revolution. So that was very interesting. And 
um, learning about the kind of mechanics and the war machine that of of the global politics that go on when um, when armed violence is starting, whether that is kind of war between countries or within countries. There's there's so many there's there's so many things that are like top, top level politics that can't be resolved or need to be resolved through armed violence. They become militarized, and it's so it's so hard to accept that um, people in in buildings and rooms trying to negotiate on something um, they can't reach an agreement, and and that upends the lives of millions of people for potentially a very long time in really tragic ways. And it's people who, you know, like you're just living your life, you're starting a business, you're trying to get famous as a musician, like you, you're a stand-up comedian, whatever. You've got your dreams and you're trying to do stuff and then war comes and it's about oil or it's about some, it's about resources, it's about things that actually are just not in your control and there's decisions being made over your head and suddenly you can't you can't chase those dreams anymore and you're displaced and you're losing people you love and that's that's so sad but the thing that i i guess find the most inspiring is the way that people re- like find forms of resistance and outlets and um ways to to still enjoy themselves and be together even though their situations are quite dire and that was something i really um, felt in Palestine that in the West Bank that I was like it's crazy there's like Israeli soldiers all around there's like big fences there's there's checkpoints there's all these different things that are just like the signs of war that for me was like so confronting and people are just like so nice and they're like come and come over for some couscous and like help me set up my Airbnb for my mm-hmm. room and um, like just yeah, like there's no, where I was, there's no alcohol. So people go out, um, you go out at night and drink tea and smoke shisha and um, very have like, I don't know, I felt like <laughs> I never I never thought I would have so much fun in an environment like that. And like I was couch surfing and um, our host, <clears throat> we would just like play deep house music and stay up till 4 a.m. <laughs> smoking shisha and <laughs> chatting and hanging out and um it was really, it was so different on the ground to how I imagined it to be. And that, that was really, um, it was, it was just a huge insight or like a huge, um, reveal. It was a big reveal for me because I was kind of like, whoa, this is, this is so different. Um, and so interesting. And, um, and yes, then studying some public studies really gave me a huge understanding of, of gender too, um, which, maybe not a huge understanding, but grew my understanding of gender a lot as well, way of like looking at gender as a constructed social category and the way that that changes depending on the environment and particularly in the extreme environments like in a crisis such as war, um, the way that we kind of can define and redefine women's roles, whether that is to absorb them into a kind of military movement at times of crisis and then kind of spit them out when the resources run low and um, that type of thing. And I think that that's really, it's really helped me on um, sort of what has followed since I finished my master's because it's given me a grounding on, on the way that gender and um, the, the way that gender works in our societies, I guess. And um, so, yeah, that was finished at the end of yeah, last year. That's so epic. I, I've, I've also got a very similar experience of just like traveling and often the, the places that are the poorest you find the people the happiest, which is just quite bizarre, really. But they just have that innate, like, gratefulness just about the really small things in life. Like in Indonesia, seeing, you know, kids kick around a soccer ball or you give them a snap surfboard or something and it's just like they just seem so stoked all the time, I guess, just because, yeah, it's just got to find joy in those little things and that's a really powerful thing for everyone to remember. Like it doesn't matter how much money you got or what you're chasing like if you can just be grateful and what you've got and try to help out help out your friend or your neighbor then that's it's going to get you a long way yeah i think like um a sense of living with like when you when you don't have so much of the 
complex things that we have in a, in a place like Sydney, um, I guess that what you do have is community. And like, I think <laughs> that was actually what my honest dissertation was about, was about home and community. And um, that is what gives us our sense of belonging and uh, is home, uh, our sense of home is community. So if you don't have the things that kind of keep you separate, then I guess your sense of belonging and happiness could probably be increased by having a close community and um, being with people rather than thinking about about things and stuff. Yeah, did you did you sort of did you take that back a step further and think it's maybe because we're tribal and we're used to being in tribes back in the day? Do you think it sort of stems from there? Um, I didn't I didn't write about that in my um, honest thesis. What I actually wrote about was um, recreating a sense of home on the internet, which has probably become quite relevant in the last 18 months because people are separated and the way that we kind of use, um, yeah, like we use the internet, we use social media to maintain communities across geographical boundaries. And that's kind of the way that um, a sense of belonging and home has maybe changed since um, we were having to write letters or <laughs> whatever. Mm. It's made it kind of that immediate contact um, made it much more accessible and made home of, of like have, have kind of have less boundaries. Um, so that was actually kind of a cool project. Now I think about it in this context. Yeah, it's definitely made everyone's life so much easier. Like having a FaceTime. Like I, I haven't yeah. seen my mum in like I don't even know how long, but just getting on FaceTime with her all the time is sort of eases the pain. Yeah, yeah, yeah totally. Yeah. Good time to buy Zoom stocks. <laughs> <laughs> Maybe too late. Yeah, <laughs> they're really too late expensive now. now. <laughs> <laughs> um, cool. So yeah, and through those studies, um, you've done a lot of traveling. So what what was your favorite place that you've traveled to? Um, yeah, it's kind of it's hard for me to name a single place. Um, I've I have basically spent my most of my early twenties traveling, which was really awesome. I did the last year of my bachelor degree online, so I spent that whole year overseas. Very well played. Um, <laughs> <laughs> thank you, Deacon Worldly. Mm. Um, <laughs> so yeah, I've spent a lot of time in um, Mozambique. I probably have spent about two years total there, which is um, very, yeah, it's a, it's a really, really special place in terms of simple way of life and fun waves and um, wonderful hot climate and uh, beautiful coastline there, whale sharks and amazing whale season and kind of just... It's a bit of a hidden gem, I guess. I think we've probably all read about a few trips to Mozambique of people um, trying to go and find the African cura that only breaks about once a year. Mm. Is, that, is that the video of strange rumblings in Shangri-La where Creed's surfing it and he's wearing an African tee? Yeah. And that's yeah. the wave? Yeah. That looks so yeah. fun. Yeah, I think that, that trip was like they went, they had like, one morning of swell and then it was flat or yeah. something and um because it's yeah it's a pretty fickle wave i've never surfed it i've never actually seen it break but there's there's a few other fun spots around there and um yeah it's kind of a little bit of a paradise really yeah it looks like um, it. and the water's warm yeah yeah it's subtropical 20, wow. 26 degrees in, in summer and yeah i definitely be looking forward to going back there um when we can finally coming in and out of Australia. But right before lockdown, I did a, probably one of the funnest trips I've ever done. Um, I went to Algeria with um, a surf travel show. And um, that was a really quick trip to just fly to North Africa um, for like 12 days. <laughs> um, but I came back like the day before the borders closed. And it was, we went, I went, they, they invited me because the, um, the episode was about uh, meeting Algeria's only female surfer, um, a woman called Diha, who is really, really awesome. She's the same age as me. She, she start, she's like a full athlete and she started surfing. And um, yeah, it was, it was amazing. We would like surfing in the Mediterranean. I really expected the waves to be completely crap, but it was actually pretty good sometimes. We've got a few days, had one dream session that was, um, it was just a small day. It was a random little peak 
I was longboarding. I just had a longboard. I was the only person out. And um, I was just thinking, like, it's perfect clear sky. It was winter, so it was, like, a little bit cold, but still nice. There's just no one around. And I was just out there thinking, I'm probably the only person surfing in the whole of Algeria right now. That's so crazy. <laughs> and that was so beautiful. And then um, we drove into the desert because it's the um, – Algeria is Africa's biggest country by land and it's the gateway to the Sahara from the north. So we drove to like the the Sahara, the desert city um, and it was like a six hour trip inland and it was actually a crazy trip. We had to get police escorts across every kind of like province and we're like waiting on the side. We, we start driving, we get pulled up by the cops and they're like, you have to wait here for the police escort because we've seen foreigners in the car. Apparently it's like there can be a little bit of um, sort of unrest out in the desert, violence spilling over from Libya. So um, we're like four hours on the side of the road or something, just playing backgammon in the back of the car. And it's just like the middle of the flat desert. And I'm with three, it was just four of us, four, four guys and a driver. And, um, and I was just like, where am I supposed to be? <laughs> Four hours on the road, it's black cops, desert, sorry, there's cops, I don't know, I had to go and pop a squat behind a rock, <laughs> <laughs> but um, then we, yeah, we like get to this, eventually get to this desert city that's like, they have no, no really, they have like a few date palms, they don't have any real wood there, so all of the buildings are like built out of the desert, it was like very crazy visual um we went up some sand dunes and uh like drank some tea they have really yummy tea that they serve everywhere you go and um Is yeah like just, moroccan tea or different one where they put extra yeah, sugar that, in yeah, it and pour, yeah heaps of sugar pour it at height about yeah. four times so it's the perfect temperature and um yeah it was a like then we drove back and i went home and in the meantime the um the pandemic had kind of spiked and I was just like completely off route in the Algerian desert. I didn't really know. I thought like, oh, coronavirus, all right. Um, and I just got, I flew back through Barcelona. I got on my flight, got to Barcelona and like the airport was really empty. They had separated like the Europe flights and the other international flights. There was just, all the flights were cancelled. And you still had no real And I was just sitting there of... like, what's going on? <laughs> <laughs> My brother texted me from Perth and was like, can you pick up some hand sanitizer in Dubai? <laughs> <We're out back laughs> here. I was like, whoa, that's great. Like, this is really escalated. And then I flew in. Um, yeah, I landed on like the 13th of March and they closed the border on the 15th. So I got there just in time, luckily. But um, it was pretty nice, pretty special to have that trip right at the end there. And yeah. At that time, I had no idea that I wouldn't go anywhere again for another two years. So. Crazy times. Yeah, that's wild to think about. Yeah, I remember um, a little different than that, but I just remember sort of being in the same situation where I was flying from, I was flying from Morocco to another part of Morocco and um, my mates were waiting for me and I thought because they didn't speak English over the over the speakers, we were flying and they turned the plane around. So before I left, I was like, "Yeah, I'll see, see you in half an hour, boys." And then I'll get it. I'll get a cab. And then I got flown back around and back, landed back down because I they weren't speaking English. I just thought I'd landed, but I've been sent back to the same airport. And I got off and I'm like, "Yeah, just landed. I'll be there in 15 minutes." And then I walked back into the airport and I was like, "This looks really similar to the last airport I was in." Like, I wonder if all the airports in Morocco are design the same <laughs> and then all these other people were just blowing up around me in French and, and to me a while like oh yeah okay I got turned around in the air I had no idea what was happening then. <laughs> <laughs> that's so good <laughs> uh yeah classic so um yeah and you grew up in in western Australia what was it like growing up in the west yeah so um I grew up in a very small town called Denmark um in the southwest which um, the only way that people really know about it is because of the right, <laughs> which is that really heavy slab that's like 40 minutes from Denmark. Um, so it's a really small town. It's only got around 5,000 people and um, my parents are still there. It, it was really awesome to grow up there. It's such a 
even though it's super remote, we didn't we didn't have a um we didn't have a shoe shop, and I had to go to um, Perth every month to get my braces tightened when I was a teenager, <laughs> um, which was about a five hour drive. And um, yeah, but it's a small community, and it's a really beautiful wild coastline there. And um, there's it's actually it's a, most of the surf community is a lot a lot of big wave surfers, and they're kind of like the local big names that we looked up to, people who were towing slabs and. I remember when the right was still a secret. And um, so it wasn't exactly a huge longboard culture around there. <laughs> um, the beach like closest to my parents' house. I used to ride my bike down there and um, I had a few friends who we all longboarded and sort of like a, it's like trying to be a right point. It's kind of on a big swell, it'll break off the point if the sand's good, but otherwise it's just like kind of a little inside corner right-hander that a lot of the time was bit of a close out but um yeah I mean I started surfing when I was like 13 or 14 and um it just I guess that kind of it was a combination of like the love of actually surfing I was like someone who would be in the water for six or eight hours a day every day during summer holidays even if it's completely crap and um but then also having my friends and we all surf together which made it so fun and just hang at the beach all day and and be out there and kind of having like my two really close longboard friends they um we all like really pushed each other we had that kind of competitive um aspect to our friendship so you would like see someone doing a sick hang 10 and you're like i gotta do that and (laughs) because we didn't really have any like really we had there was like one local guy who was quite a good longboarder so we just kind of tried to copy him but otherwise we would just like watch longboard movies to try and see what to do and so you'd be like at home watching Sprout and then just get up at five o'clock in the morning go down to the beach and it's like half a foot low tide on shore and you're out there trying to hang heels <laughs> yeah I know all about that just getting pumped up watching an epic surf edit and then just running down to Bondi to surf a close out with 500 people yeah. like, probably shouldn't have watched that edit <laughs> yeah like it was really, it was really awesome though to, um, it was extremely carefree. Like my parents lived, um, yeah, pretty close to the beach, close enough for me to ride my bike. I used to leave my board in the surf club down there. I had a key for the boardroom. And so I could just ride down at any time. And, um, we actually, me and my friend Kira used to sleep in the surf club sometimes during summer. So we could wake up at the crack of dawn and be out there before there was anyone else. Girls are dedicated back then. <laughs> you know, at some stage I think we used to we used to go into the surf club into the like um the first aid training room where they had nice carpet and um it was one of the lifeguards, the same guy who was like the good longboarder, he used to sleep in there sometimes. And um so he gave us the key. <clears throat> and then they put motion sensors in there because they didn't want people sleeping in there, I guess. And so we still slept in there, but we just had to make sure that we didn't move. It's <laughs> <laughs> <That> mission impossible. <laughs> Stay completely still. Tomorrow yeah. the way's going to be sick. And I feel like of all those mornings of, like, getting up really early and, like, I used to commute an hour and a half on the bus to school, and so I had to be on the school bus at quarter past seven. And so I would be... Um, I have to be out of the water by 6.30. So I would be in the water at 5. And it's pretty sharky zone down there. And, like, I remember surfing one morning by myself and with the stars still out and all this kelp. And <laughs> I think in all those, like, mornings of getting up so early to surf, um, there was only one morning I can remember that it was actually good. <laughs> I remember this session being, like, that That was so fun. It would have been when I was 16 or something. Um but every other, all my other memories was that it was so bad and we just kept on getting up just, yeah. you know, just in case before the wind comes in. I'm trying to imagine it as it's just like there's slabs and then there's a shitty beach break. Is that what's well, happening? it's, no, there's a lot of beaches around here, okay. but that's kind of, a lot of them aren't very accessible. Like yeah. um, that one's kind of just the one that was like accessible. It's called Ocean Beach. Every town has an ocean the beach. local. It's like a 3K kind of um like U-shaped bay, like it's quite an enclosed bay, and it's actually pretty sick in terms of like the the point would would be offshore and southwesterly where everywhere, everywhere else is onshore, and then as the bay kind of 
curves around, it's like more exposed to the swell. So on a small day in a normally wind, it'll be offshore and good around the bay, which is pretty awesome. But um, there's, yeah, there's a few other beaches around that um, do get really good waves, but you just kind of like, you need to drive there or you need a four, four by four to get in. Um, and Ocean Beach is just the one that um, we could easily get to. So <laughs> we didn't, didn't really have any, um, a lot of options unless we could like convince our dads to take us somewhere on the weekends or whatever. But I definitely had that feeling when lockdown started recently that um, I live more than five k's from the beach, so I haven't been able to surf for the last few months. And um, I had that same feeling of like when I want my mum to take me to the beach when I'm 16 and she <laughs> won't take me <laughs> or yeah. something. I'm being like, mom, please, can we just go? And like that frustration. And I was like, well, it feels like that right now in lockdown and I'm like, Clarence, please let me go to the beach. <laughs> <laughs> wow, it must have been nice coming out the other side of that. Um, so, yeah, what was sort of, who were some of the influential figures back then, either locally or internationally or I guess even like media that you used to consume that really sort of shaped your surfing or how you looked at longboarding? Yeah, so, um, like, I think, Growing up as a as a girl surfer, as a girl longboarder, they, and especially in a place that we didn't really have, there were not a lot of girls who surfed, a lot of women who surfed, and there was a few, but not that many. Um, Jodie Cooper's from that area, but I've never met her, not yet. <laughs> um, and we basically just had to rely on surf mags, surf magazines, but none of them really had any girls in them, and they would always have, like, Tracks would like put out their their Mac with the um, DVD, and it was always just like guys. And so we used to watch Deer and Yonder a lot, and um, Cassia Meta was my teenage hero for sure. Which we would like go on YouTube and just like search clips of her. Like, has she got a new cookout? When's Cassia putting a new cookout? <laughs> we haven't got anything else to watch. And um, and yeah, I loved Alex Nose. I used to. Always, we, me and my friends would always just like have sleepovers and play Alex Nose clips, and um, that was kind of basically how we tried to model our surfing. Um, and yeah, otherwise we just watched Blue Crush a lot. <laughs> I still love Blue Crush, even it's though movie. it's you know there's probably some questions in there about it, but it's. It's friggin' awesome, and to, like being a fifteen-year-old girl and having not really any other girl surf movies to watch. Blue Crush was um, was like we hunt, we clung to that for yeah. sure. I reckon it really, it really inspired a lot of girls as well that were sort of maybe sitting on the fence about surfing to go out and try it and really get out there. Yeah, I think like it portrays this lifestyle that's like you can you can live like the dream, even though she's like. A cleaner in a hotel. Also, the way that like Anne Marie, I don't know, she stands up for herself. You know, she's got attitude. Kind of want to be like that. And then also like the three friends living together and just getting up early, going surfing. That was like what we all wanted to do. <laughs> yeah, that's so awesome. And um, yeah, more I guess modernly, modern day influences over your surfing. Who are some people that are sort of standing out to you at the moment? in longboarding or just surfing? Yeah, so the, um, the Longboard World Tour just resumed recently um, and they had two events, one at the Surf Ranch and, and they had the deciding world title, deciding event at um, Malibu, which um, <clears throat> the thing I really love about the Longboard World Tour is they have equal entry places for the men and women, equal prize money. The women's Longboard World Tour is like just as important it's considered regarded and given the credit as being just as important as the men's longboard world tour. So that's really nice. And like the standards in those events is, it's amazing. It's crazy. Like some of the, the younger girls who are coming through, uh, I say girls because they really are girls. They're like 16, 16 year olds, <laughs> which is so exciting. Like Kalise Kelly Opa'a, who she won the first event at the start of last year in Noosa. I think she's, she's, maybe 16 um she's from she's Hawaiian and she's just um she's unbelievably smooth and and her surfing so well put together even my mum who doesn't surf is 
a huge Kelly's Kelly Bar fan <laughs> just from watching her her heats and um and sort of anyone can look at her surfing and and say that it's 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 incredible it's amazing um so seeing those kind of the the young cluster of girls that are coming through and are really taking longboarding to the next level is is very cool to witness and um even though i'm only 28 i see them and i'm like they're like a little bit of a grandma these days (laughs) (laughs) um but yeah locally tully tully white she's um she's out of manly and she's really exciting she's surfing a lot of different boards and doing some really cool stuff which is is really nice to to see and um always yeah super super happy to watch tully surf and, and see what she's kind of has a really interesting line that she draws and her, her style is really, it's kind of, it's quite unique and it's, it's changed and developed over the, over the years and seeing her kind of flourish now is really awesome. Um, so yeah, women's longboarding is in a really awesome place right now. It's beautiful. Um, yeah, you've done a few competition stuff yourself, including um, you took out the Curl Curl Mel Jam a few years ago now or... No, that was this year. That was this year. Wow. Yeah. I can't believe that competitions are even still around then. It just seems like it feels like it's just been paused, everything. Um, and, yeah, so you won that competition. And um, do you want to tell us a bit about that day and sort of how everything went down? Yeah, so um, I've sort of been competing for quite a while. I started competing when I was, like, 17. started doing the WA events and um, – even managed to do the Longboard World Tour events in 2019. But the Curly Mail Jam this year has definitely been the biggest event I've ever done, not in terms of the actual event, but kind of what followed and the impact it's had on my own life. Um, so, yeah, the Curly Mail Jam is, was held at North Belleville and Northern Beaches. And um, it's, it's like, it's a... It's an amateur event. It's kind of, it's got a fair bit of money for an amateur event. Um, but it is not like a WSL event or anything like that. It's just a club comp. And, um, yeah, I got a, I was a late entry into it. So it was kind of this window um, from March till May this year where we thought that COVID was done and um, surf comps were back. I managed to do three contests in that time. And um, they, yeah, they, they held this event and there was, there was 12, 12 women in it, so it wasn't, wasn't huge, but the waves were kind of like a bit of a shorey. It was breaking pretty fat out the back. And yeah, I was, was going to say, I can't even write Kelly on my shortboard. I don't know how you guys do it on a longboard. <laughs> yeah, I mean, it was kind of, yeah, it was a bit of a shorey. It wasn't, it wasn't that bad, though. Like, it was hard. The final was hard. There was not a lot of waves and... Um, I just managed to somehow get two little runners and, um, it was, it's actually like a high performance longboard event. Like everyone was riding high pros and, um, I don't actually have a high pro. So I, I was like, Oh, should I try and borrow one? Like it's kind of a bit of a hectic wave. And I was like, Oh no, I'll just, I'll just ride my log. Like that's what I know. So I was actually riding a nine, six single fin and <laughs> getting yeah. dumped into the shore but yeah, in the final, I managed to get two good waves, and I feel like not most people kind of struggled, and I won the event, which was was really cool. Um, I didn't realise at that time that they had unequal prize money for the men's and women's division, so um, I came in and I just didn't know that I'd won. But um, when when we were talking about it, I was talking about Tully was in the final actually, and her mom was there. And she said, like, I think they have any prize money last year. They did. And um, and I thought, like, that can't be true. Like, surfing has equal prize money now because they have it at the, at the CT or in WSL events. Um, and so I went over to the, like, where they were setting up the presentation to the table. They had the novelty checks on there. And I just, like, moved them all to see how much prize money was. And I saw that I knew the women's winner, winner would get 1500 but the men's winner was going to get four grand. And more than double. More than double, wow. yeah. So I was pretty, pretty annoyed about that. And um, 
yeah, just talking about it with Tully and um, another friend, Kira, who was also in the final, who um, actually came second. And we were just like, how is this going on? And I'd heard that there'd been another comp in Noosa the month before that um, the winner of the women's had gotten less than the men's. And I was like, it's just infuriating. And <laughs> that, like, that you can, you can show up, you can pay exactly the same to be there. And um, you put in the same efforts, you know, like your training is the same, your equipment is the same, like everything costs the same. They don't give you a discount when you do your shopping at Woolies because you're a woman, but they want to give you less for doing exactly the same thing and and putting in exactly the same effort. Um, They want to give you less money, less prize money. And so I thought maybe it's um, less entry fee. So I asked um, one of the guys how much he paid for his entry fee and it was the same. And so, um, yeah, when we got up there, um, and they said that I'd won the event and gave me, gave me my check and we started walking off. And then, um, the guy who was presenting, said, don't you think we should hear from the winner? And he gave me the mic and I thought, well, <laughs> I think he's going to regret that. <laughs> and, and so I started saying like, Oh, like, thank you so much for such a wonderful day. And, um, and I was like, there was a voice in my head saying, don't say it, don't say it, don't say it. And then I just, I was already saying it. I just, yeah, I called them out. I, I said that, you know, that, that our um, surfing is worth less than half of the men's prize money. And um, it was, it was a pretty, like, I guess it was just a result of me being mad at the time. I didn't um, have any kind of grand plan for anything. I was just like, we can't let them get away with this, you know? We you didn't sound too mad as well. You really nailed it. It was it was well played. <laughs> Thanks. <laughs> yeah, like, I don't know. I think it was extremely scary to do that. Like, I, I was basically, it was all I could manage was to, <laughs> to get something out. And, um, yeah, and someone filmed it and I, um, I left left the event thinking like no one from the time, none of the organizers or anything came up and said anything to me or anything like that. Um, but I, I left the event, I left thinking like it's really awesome that I won. But also it's really infuriating that we have to deal with this and um, and I had just recently watched Girls Can't Surf movie and um, it was like 30 years later, we're still dealing with the exact same thing. Like how is this still happening? And I think I probably would never have had the courage to say anything if I hadn't watched that movie <laughs> just before. And, um, yeah, I, like two days later, I posted the, the video um, on my Instagram. And it's um, not not really thinking that it would lead to anything or, or anything like that. Like the night after the event, actually, I saw one of my friends, I came home, I saw one of my friends and told her what had happened. And she said, I wonder if you'll get any media out of this. And I was like, oh, probably not. I don't think people are really interested in, in this type of stuff. But after I posted the video, um, a journalist um, or somebody who's a photographer for um, Sydney Morning Herald messaged me and said, I'm going to send this to the Herald. Do you want to um, have this other right? Maybe they'll do a story. And so a journalist from Sydney Morning Herald reached out to me to say, can we do an interview and, and get some photos? And um, so I did an interview on the phone and then next morning went down to Maroubra and did some photos. And um, and then and the, by this time the video had started to kind of like get a bit of a, re- a response on socials. It went pretty, pretty viral. It was starting to like blow up a bit. But then the next morning, that night, it like Sydney Morning Herald um, shared the story and it was like the lead story on their landing page. And then the next morning it was on the front cover of the newspaper <laughs> and um and and then it just like fully blew up I was doing yeah like I've never been so inundated yeah. <laughs> I did a bunch of like live tv interviews I went into channel 10 I went on the project um and it was just like me just having no idea about how to do media or anything I was like thank god I did that I just scraped through that journalism degree that time 
<laughs> oh, well, like, I was actually really grateful that I'd done the trip to Algeria so I knew how to talk on camera. Um, <laughs> but it was pretty surreal. It was really, it was, it was, it was intense, actually. Um, and actually, actually, before the Sydney Morning Herald did their story, Beach Group ran a story on it. Um, and that was kind of like what made it start to blow up a bit. And then um, since then, basically everything has changed for me. Um, I sort of went from just, you know, doing my thing, having a surf, and now, um, well, people send me a lot of really wonderful supportive messages every day saying really nice stuff <laughs> about me and what I'm doing, which is really nice. And um, the response has just been like overwhelmingly kind and supportive and, and people that um, I guess so often it's people that have said um, something like this has happened to me. Thank you for speaking up. Um, and now it's more progressed into like, I sort of say that my Instagram message request is like a um, sort of a collective diary of people saying this, this has been my experience of gender discrimination in like whatever form that it might be and what should I do? Um, which is, <laughs> is really awesome that people, yeah, can feel that they can reach out to me and, and ask for support or, or just let me know what they've done to kind of combat it. Or um, it's a real, it's a real kind of collective community effort of, of trying to fight for change and um, and drive sort of yeah like a, a deconstruction of the patriarchy and a reconstruction of something that's uh, that's um, more inclusive and, and better and, and safer and, um, and more encouraging for everyone. So. Yeah, that was all kind of kicked off from um, from that winning that surf comp. That at the time, I just kind of thought like, oh, it'd be good if I won because I kind of need the cash. Yeah. <laughs> and also, um, global surf industries donated the missing prize money after. Oh, beautiful! That, so, yeah. yeah, I bet you didn't expect starting that day. Like you can just never plan for these sort of life changing moments, can you? No, absolutely yeah. not. <laughs> yeah. And and since then, that sort of catapulted you into a bit of a movement of. Um, petitioning for equal equal pay for equal play? Yeah, so um, basically like through throughout all the media kind of um, I, I really I really I was I tried to be pra pragmatic in um, in not making this like a session of throwing dirt on that one club that did something wrong but rather to talk about the wider issues of um, gender inequality in sport and the way that um, a general kind of culture and attitude of um, towards women in sport and in surfing that women don't belong and that we don't have ownership is the kind of culture that gives clubs like the, um, the club who ran the Mal Jam permission to do things like give equal prize money and for it to be fine. So I, I really was talking a lot about in the media about um, meaningful change that needs to happen. And when I got to the end of that kind of really intense week, I thought, well, A, I'm still mad, and B, what am I gonna do now? Because if I'm talking about meaningful change, then I've gotta I've gotta do it. So <clears throat> I met with my local MP, who was a Labour MP, Joe Halen, and um, just to kind of say like I wanna do something, I don't really know what, I've never done anything like this before. I, know, I understand the issue, I know the problem, but I don't know how to propose anything, an alternative. So um, she organised a meeting for me to meet with the, um, the state sports minister, Natalie Ward, who kind of didn't really have um, much to offer me, but Joe suggested that um, I start a petition. So um, I formed a, a duo with um, someone called Kate Ullman, who is a writer for Tracks magazine. And um, we, yeah, we drafted a petition and, um, and then I kind of like tapped back into that community of women athletes that I'd um, gotten access to through, through the, um, the, the prize money call out. So people like Chloe Dalton, who has the Female Athlete Project that she got me on for an episode, um, but she is also a, um, 
a, and a rugby player and um, AFL player and <clears throat> a bunch of different people that I had had contact with and I said, like, we're going to do this petition, do you want to look over it? Um, and, and then sort of bring them in to form this bit of a coalition to to try and um, to make a change. So the petition is um, calling for gender equity to be made a condition of um, sports, um, of, of government, government funding for sports clubs and organisations. So it's not trying to legislate equal prize money. Um, it's trying to make, um, it's trying to make clubs implement gen, um, equal prize money and equal opportunity and equal support and access um, for women and girls. Um, that, and if they don't do that, then they don't get funded by the government. Um, so we launched that in September and um, I also just went back to all those journalists that had reached out to me and said, hey, we're, we're launching this and we're, um, if you want to do a follow-up story. So um, yeah, we need to get 20,000 signatures by December, which um, is coming around very quickly. But um, to get it tabled in Parliament, but if that doesn't happen, I think um, it's, it's still opened a big conversation and kind of kept, put the issue in the media um, in a lot in a lot of different outlets, which is is really important. And it's um, it's kind of yeah, like I've been kind of working with a few different people now, different different stakeholders who are interested in the issue and and brands that are. Uh, like they they want to rather than thinking about government funding but thinking about sponsorship and brands that only want to sponsor organizations who are do show that they have gender equal policies like equality is kind of in fashion so <laughs> um it's exciting to be part of that and um to be yeah kind of in a in a place of of leading a campaign which i've never done before um and, and also, yeah, just being part of a community of people who are all pushing for the same thing and, and trying to see this change happen. Yeah, it's pretty amazing to see legends like you taking on the baton from other women and just trying to even out the playing field of society. So thank you for that. Um, we'll include the link to the petition in our show notes or it's in your Instagram handle. Yeah, yeah. At Saltwater Pilgrim. That's all the program, yeah. Or you can just search Equal Pay for Equal Play New South Wales and um, it's there. Cool. Um, yeah, so I guess unfortunately the surf's not always the fairest place. Like I see it every day with people showing aggression and especially at Bondi dropping in, not looking over their shoulder. And um, do you have any examples growing up or even more recently where you may have felt discriminated in the surf because of your gender? Um, yeah, like there's always kind of, um, day by day examples of you know paddling out and um, and someone will someone will an old older person usually will like tell you where to sit or how to paddle and that's like trying to it's trying to be nice but it's extremely condescending um, <laughs> but those type of things or yeah like um, off the most the most common one is when you're on a wave and that somebody sees you on the way, assumes that you can't make the section, and then drops in. It's the most common one. And I'm always like, I can make the section. You can't look at a wave, see that I'm a girl, and then burn me. But um, probably the most hectic example would be um, earlier this year at Crescent Head. I was driving back down from a contest at Byron, and um, I stopped in for the night to have a surf and paddled out in the morning and... Um, it was really good. I went shortboarding first and then I went back in, got my log, I paddled out and it was like, it was picking up. It wasn't big. And um, it was it was very good though, the waves were pumping. And um, I, um, I got a wave and I started paddling back out and then it was like quite crowded at the top. And um, this this guy on on like an old male, he was riding like a 1960s Keo, like a big heavy board, and um, he was dropping in on someone. I was paddling out. I couldn't go behind him because there was someone behind him. So I just tried to like scoot over the wave. He didn't pull off and he ran straight into my head, like cracked me in the head and sliced my shin. I was, so I was just like dazed in the water 
And um, this other guy saw it and was like helping me. And Tully, Tully was actually there too. <laughs> and um, so they like they were like, "You were right" or whatever. And I was kind of a bit like, "Whoa!" Like, and um, I went in and I was at the shore, sitting on the shore with a um, ice pack on my head and like bandage on my leg, just sitting there like completely rattled. And the guy who had helped me in the water came in and he was like, that's the worst hit I've ever had, seen. Like that was like such a bad crack in your head. And um, luckily it didn't draw blood. I just had like a big lump there and um, like maybe a mild concussion. And then the guy who did it comes in and um, instead of saying like, I'm like sorry about that or anything, he starts going, now what you've got to understand <laughs> and starts trying to tell me that I didn't know how to surf and that it was my fault. He's giving you a lesson on surf etiquette while he's burning someone. Yeah, and like saying like, it's my fault that he ran over my head and that it was because I don't know how to surf. And I was just like, and Tully actually yelled at him, she's on the world tour, she knows how to surf. He's <laughs> <laughs> the only person That's in my Tully. life I've ever told to F off to his face. Yeah, fair enough. And um, I think like, I, I would have some doubt that he would speak like that to, um, to somebody of another gender. But um, I did hear him. Then he walked off and then I heard his mate saying like, nah, bro, you fucked it. What's <laughs> <laughs> yeah. your fault? So, I mean, that was a pretty, that was a pretty bad um, thing that happened. I, it made me really nervous in a crowd for a while after. And um, it also really made me think like, to what end, you know, like, Sure, um, that was probably a good way. But imagine if you'd given me an actual brain injury or like given me a serious head injury that could have really changed my life in a really negative, in a bad way. For what? For one, for one wave? Like it's not worth it. And then to come in and, and be like actually just condescending and rude, I thought that that's just very extremely inappropriate conduct. <laughs> For sure, yeah. And, you hope you um, just be checking in. Like, if you run over anyone, you know, regardless of whose fault it is, the first thing you want to do is just make sure the other person's okay. Yeah, totally. Yeah, yeah. Um, yeah, so do you have any advice sort of for, for young girls and young women growing up on how to handle these types of ocean encounters? Um, ooh, that's kind of a tough one because it depends on the circumstance. But I think... Um, for me anyway, and any times that I've kind of had a confrontation in the surf or had a, um, had somebody try and say something rude to me, I actually just look at them blankly like I can't hear them and then paddle away <laughs> because I'm not there to, I'm not there to argue. And I think that, um, like, I don't know, I'm, I'm definitely, my mind would be that we're not going to, we're not going to take down the patriarchy by fighting with people in the surf. So best to concentrate on your own surfing and shred. And also one thing that I do that's quite fun is um, just paddle out purposely looking a little bit kooky just to <laughs> fuck with them, you know. Yeah. <laughs> just so someone says something a little bit condescending and then you can like, you know, hang yeah. 10 past them or something. But <laughs> um, I think just, yeah, like doing your best to not let not let the um, – not let the people out there deter you and to know that you're just as capable as anybody out there, that if they're out there, then you can be out there and that's your space too. And, um, and just try and think about the shredding and rather than the crowd, um, that's basically what I try and do. Sometimes I, get, I do get really fired up when the crowd's really bad and if it's quite hostile and if there's mean guys out there, but I just try and channel that into like paddling deeper and like surfing sicker <laughs> <laughs> I mean, that's great advice though that just don't engage because any surf argument i've ever been involved in just afterwards i'm just like why why did i do that like why you know like even just saying something to someone like there's no real winners at the end of the day like i don't know maybe if you're trying to correct someone's surf etiquette a little bit but if you're going to get you know try and say something to someone dropping it on you especially at bondi you're just going to spend your whole every surf just coming out frustrated so yeah, totally. Yeah, I think like for your own enjoyment, I find anyway for my own enjoyment that if I, yeah, if I ever say something to anyone, then I just like that's in my mind rather than the surf and um, just, I just really do my best to ignore everyone. 
Yeah, for sure. Cool. Well, to finish off with, we've always got a little round of quick fire questions. So uh, I'll fire away. If you're going to give your 16 year old self any life advice, what would it be? Um, don't give up. If, if the world was going to end and you had one country to travel around for a surf trip, what would it be and why? Ooh, like forever or just, just this one just last get surf? one last trip. Oh my God. Um, Senegal? Yeah. Had to ride one board for the rest of your life. What would it be? 5920. Where do you see the future of surfing going? Further and further afield. <laughs> okay. What do you want to see more of in the future of surfing? Um, more girls, more women, more opportunities for women and girls. Beautiful. Thanks so much, Lucy. Really had fun with that. Thanks so much for having me. If you enjoyed this episode of Ocean Matters Podcast, powered by Board Socks, then please don't forget to rate, review, and subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. We would be incredibly grateful to keep this show moving in the right direction and to keep spreading the word and the stories of the ocean's beautiful powers to people from all walks of life.